My guest today is the head of account management SMB, Amir, at Yahoo. And here's what some of his colleagues say about him. I've always been impressed at how professional and detail-oriented Dan is, and at the same time, how well he communicates, sharing his knowledge and experience to support the team. Here's another one. I was blown away by his energy, enthusiasm, and sheer volume of knowledge. I love his direct style of communicating, his quick decision-making abilities, and his fun approach to work. Daniel Hazelden, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. That's uh, so your head's going to explode now. <laughs> yeah, it won't fit in the frame. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll go to that wide, wide frame. Tell me a little bit uh, about where you grew up and, and what that was like. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I grew up in a, a small village um, in Kent, um, in the middle of the sticks. Um, fairly, fairly, I guess, kind of a sedate lifestyle, um, cut off from from the world. So if you wanted to go anywhere, you had to walk two miles to your local train station. Um, and it was just a very easygoing kind of like laid back lifestyle. So plenty of cricket, plenty of football, plenty of cycling. Um, and yeah, just a, a fairly relaxed way of, of I guess, uh, an upbringing. And is that sort of how you prefer things now? Or are you more of a big city guy? Definitely not a big city guy. <laughs> um, uh, I, I like peace and quiet. Um, when I went to university, I went to university at uh, Middlesex University, so I moved to North London. And that was a bit of a, a, a culture shock because it was just that whole thing of constantly having people around you and not being able to have any quiet or downtime. So mm. if I was, you know, back home uh, from Lower House, down my village, I could go out cycling for two hours and I wouldn't see a single person. And, and I loved that. And, mm. you know, then going to, to London where you literally, you, you can't switch off. You can't have that alone time to go out and do the things that you want to do. So that was a bit of a, a culture shock. I mean, I'm, I'm living in Dublin now. Um, I'm living in living in the, the suburbs. So um, it's it's the right blend. It's it is a city, but at the same time, it's easy to get out of the city, go to the mountains, go to the coast. So um, so yeah, it's, it's about finding the, the right balance there. Mm. And, and the housing prices are probably like Kent as well. Maybe even um, yeah, well, probably more so. Um, they're a little bit more expensive um, mm. here in Dublin, but um, yeah. luckily we we kind of bought at the right time here. So yeah, nice. And so, wait, when you were growing up in Kent, what what did you want to be when when you grew up? Well, I wanted to be an architect, and. Um, I think it probably would have been good for someone to rein me in at a young age to say like, look, you're just not going to cut it as an architect. So I used to drive my parents mad. Um, I used to always constantly be drawing football stadiums. Um, it was the one thing that I wanted to do as, as a kid. I wanted to design football stadiums. Um, and then at secondary school, I chose my subjects for GCSE based around the fact that I wanted to be an architect rather than focusing on the things that I should have done, which I would have been good at, for example, drama and PE. But I opted for, say, uh, technical drawing and other other subjects based around architecture. Mm. And then that fell flat on its face uh, when I realized, like, basically, I'm never going to have strong enough maths to be an architecture. Sorry, an architect. So um, 
so yeah just coming back to the question like that's what i wanted to be and then i went to university i studied um italian and film um again doing things that maybe i shouldn't have done uh should have been a little bit more kind of like thinking about the longer picture of like what do i actually want to do with my career um and then when i finished university that was the the difficult part like what like i have my degree now what do i actually want to do um and I just kind of stumbled across something which was around media monitoring. So analyzing how companies and entities are perceived in the press. And that was the thing that I wanted to get involved in. So um, I found a few companies and one of which was at the time they called uh, Thompson Intermedia, which was then rebranded as uh, Ubiquity. Um, so I, I found a position there as a media analyst and I, I got that, that position for five years. And then it was an opportunity to basically change gears because, you know, there's only a certain level that you're going to progress within that role. Um, and it just coincided with that. I, I then met my now wife, um, who was Irish and, and living here in Dublin. So I did two and a half years of, of a long distance relationship and traveling back and forth. But those were the days where you could get a Ryanair flight for, say, 10 euros, you know, return. So um, and it just coincided with my, my working patterns. So. Um, after two years, um, my girlfriend, or now wife, um, she basically got a position at Trinity as a mature student. So quit my job, moved to Dublin, um, and then... It was a trap, Dan. It was a trap. No, I know. It's a trap, <laughs> and you walked straight into it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, was, there was no way, no way on earth she was ever going to give up Dublin to, to move to Kent. Not, no. not a hope. It's only for a couple of years. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so then I, I arrived here and I was, I was lucky enough to get a, a contractor position, um, mm. with Google and then, um, got the position with, um, with Yahoo. And then that's where I kind of found, found my niche and then, you know, basically developed my career from there on in. So yeah. a long story short to come back to your original question, what did I want to be when I was younger? So it moved from, you know, designing football stadiums. Uh, yeah. being an architect to then being a media analyst to then not knowing what I specifically wanted, but then just basically evolving into working into digital advertising. Yeah. I'm interested in the the threads there that some of the comments people say about you, they pick out the, this detail orientation that you have, which would probably fit in with the, the analyst thing, mm. I'm guessing. The, the drawing as well as particularly that kind of architectural drawing is quite detail oriented. Mm. Um, it was interesting you mentioned maths because uh, I, to me, I, I can't draw to save my life. Mm. So that would be the thing that would hinder me mm. and the maths as well. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, I hadn't thought of maths being an issue with, with, with the architecture side of things. But um, are you good at drawing? Uh, Stadiums. But the, the, the math side of things, it is, is always been something that has, has haunted me. Um, mm. And by that, uh, a really good, good, good example is um, last year, um, I applied for a role um, at UCD uh, to join their, their master's course, uh, to do a master's in, in management. Started the course, um, loved certain subject matters, but then I had to do corporate finance. And that was my downfall. Um, and I tried to do some checks beforehand to say, you know, how intense is this going to be? What level of maths do I ha have to have? Because I was, I was really anxious about it. Yeah. Um, and I said, like, oh, no, you know, it's, it's fine. It's fine. And this was speaking to, to students that are actually already on the course. 
And then when I actually started to do it, I think I struggled massively. And I think people on the course struggled as well. But my my struggle was that much more acute. And yeah. it caused me huge anxiety to do this this corporate finance segment. And the the upshot of all of this was is that I knew that in order to, to progress through the other side of Christmas, I would have to do an exam. I would have to pass that yeah. exam for corporate finance. Um, and I just couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Yeah. And is it that you just haven't had the, the basics in that type of maths or is it that for some reason it's like a, a mathematical version of dyslexia, just numbers don't work for you? It is exactly that because the upshot of all of this was is that there was um, one day my wife came home and I was due to have some coursework handed in and she was going absolutely ballistic at me because she was like, how do you not get this? Mm. Like, And I mean, it was literally... It wasn't a screaming match, it was her shouting because she just couldn't comprehend how I couldn't grasp basic, you know, equations and, you know, um, different calculations and such. Mm -hmm. So after that, it was a case that, you know, she mentioned this to, to her mum and her mum started doing some digging around into it. And she said, actually, by the sounds of it, it sounds like you have this calculator, which is effectively the, the, the kind of the, the mathematical version of dyslexia. And it's something I've always been conscious of. Um, mm. I did this, like there's free tests that you can do online, but they only kind of barely touch the surface. And then there's ones that you can actually do, like pay for and do proper kind of assessments. So that's what I did. Um, and it turns out that I basically have dyscalculia. So in a way it was, it was good to have like that relief that, you know, you can kind of put something to it, but it's something that I'd never even conceived mm. before. And it's not, it's not only just the, the maths element, it's, it's also a case that you can have, um, you can lose all sense of time. You could be doing something, you just lose all sense of time. And also your, your perception of speed as well. So like often I'd be driving on the motorway and there's no, there's no in between, uh, you know, I'm either going too fast or I'm going too slow. And I often get my wife nagging in my ear saying, you're driving too fast or why are you poodling along? And that, that's part and parcel of dyscalculia. It's sometimes, you know, there's no in-between. You're either one extreme or, or the other. So that, that's been quite eye-opening because I've only discovered that this year, but it's good to, to recognize that, okay, this is what I have and, you know, this is how I can kind of work with it. And that officer is why I was going too fast. Sorry? And that officer is why I was going too fast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, when I asked that question, I, I was not aware of it. I'd never heard of dyscalculia before. Mm. Uh, I mean, it makes sense. We, we, we understand it now about dyslexia. Mm. Um, and in fact, as a, a guest I have on the podcast tomorrow has, has dyslexia all his life. Mm. But I think that's more understood now. Certainly in the schooling system, they're able to spot it earlier. Yeah. Because, you know, 40 years ago, people who had that were just considered to be dumb, stupid, you know, not, 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 not smart yeah. like everybody else. And, and then that I can only imagine went to how they felt about themselves and how, how it colored, how they saw the everything mm. and, and school itself. Um, it, it, was it similar to yourself or, or were they able to do they? I'm guessing the fact you only discovered it recently is that they didn't recognize it in school. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was at school, I, I guess the one thing that I'd say about myself is that 
I think have always been a kind of slow starter to things. But then once I pick something up, you know, I, I can run with it quite quickly. So when I was at primary school, you know, no doubt about it, I was a slow learner um, for sure. Um, but I gradually, you know, developed over the course of time, um, you know, did a did my um, A-levels in English literature, which if you go back to primary school to say that you would choose to do your, your A-levels in English literature would be farcical. Um, but that yeah. shows, you know, that there was a level of, you know, growth that was there. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like there, there definitely wasn't anything to kind of, you know, address the fact that, you know, at that early age, back in like um, the eighties that, you know, someone would have something called dyscalculia. Um, mm. The ironic thing is, is that in my, like, does it affect my day-to-day -day job? Because, you know, I do work in a, in a sales function role. I do have to do forecasts. Um, it doesn't actually impact me, ironically. And I'm someone who, but at the same time, I, I still like to, I still like to dive in, in terms of numbers. So the, the key, like one of the, the it's, it's a very basic tool, but it's, um, it's a percentage um, calculator. I use it for everything because it's a way for me to articulate to my team, you know, we've delivered X percentage of growth or, or whatever it may be. Um, and that might come across as being detailed orientated, but it's because I want everyone to be on the same level as me as, as, as kind of understanding. And I think when you, when you position things in a certain way, it just makes it that much clearer for, for everyone. Yeah. Anyway, anybody who's ever done forecasting knows it's all about the gut. It's got nothing to do with real numbers, right? Well, yeah, there, there, there is that element as well. And I, and I think it's also recognizing the bigger picture. So carry yeah. that in certain things. So, yeah. you know, on yeah. my team, for example, right now, there are certain markets where they're overjoyed, you know, yeah, we're going to hit like 108% for this, this quarter. It's like, hang on a minute. You know, you have to take into account that we always have that, that dip around the 18th of December. There's other external factors to take into account. And if I do my calculations on the impact last year, this is how it's going to impact us this year. Mm. And then it kind of, I'm not trying to kind of, you know, uh, rain on their parade, but I'm just trying to be more realistic. And as okay. said, like there is a number element, but there's also yeah. that, you know, thinking yeah. as a bigger picture as well. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. That's sometimes the job as a sales leader is to dampen irrational exuberance, mm. for sure. Um, when you were younger, who motivated, or not who motivated, who inspired you the most? Um, I think when I was younger, I would have to say my brother. Um, I think he was just his, his personality. Um, he was very versatile uh, in a sense that, you know, he would be helping out with the scouts. He would be captain of the, say, the, the cricket team. He would be, you know, leading, you know, plays. Um, he would be going off to do um, Camp America activities, you know. So, and also he was a very um, outgoing person. And it just seemed that he could turn his hand to, to anything. And I guess that was the, the person that I looked up that I wanted to kind of, you know, emulate. And I know people kind of look to, to stars and to, to sports people. Mm. But at, at that time, it was actually my brother because, you know, he was kind of the, the benchmark for what, I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve mm. because it's always that whole thing as well. There's always an element of like big brother, little brother, mm. um, but it was, it was, as I said, it was just a case of, you know, seeing the things that he was doing and, and seeing the way that uh, his personality came across in everything that he did. And I guess that's similar to, to, you know, what I try and do in my job like today mm. that I try and bring my personality to the role. Mm. So 
I think, yeah, I, I would I would 100% say my brother. Yeah, it's really lovely to hear that. You're the first person who's ever said, named a sibling as somebody who's inspired them. It's usually a teacher or a parent or a grandparent or, as you say, some, some public figure. Um, that's really, really nice. Um, what I wanted to ask you about then was that sort of, the, oh, yeah, I know what I wanted to ask you was, you'd said it about the drama. Talk to me about that, your, your, interested in, your interest in drama. Because uh, I'm always interested in the link between sales and drama. I, I do believe there are common threads, but tell me where that interest comes from. Uh, I'll be honest, I actually don't know. It, it, you know, I've never been in the position where someone said, you know, why the interest in drama? Um, I think it's probably a certain element of enjoying playing different roles and wearing different hats. And um, I do recall with uh, great fondness that um, we, we worked for a third party sales vendor based in Barcelona. And myself and my colleague, we went out to visit them and we were doing training and it was sales role play. So, you know, could they take on board um, the sales role play scenario that we had in place? And uh, I'd given them these specific examples based on UK based customers. And one of them was I just given them a random example, which was a, um, a butcher shop in Barnsley that wanted to, to, to generate online sales. And unbeknown to my sales colleague, I went into the full role of putting on the accent and, putting <laughs> on and coming up with different phrases. And it, it kind of, it completely threw her, she couldn't stop laughing. And I felt right. bad for the person that we were doing the role play scenario with, but they, they kind of bought into it. I think they were a bit shocked, but they kind of just went with it. And I think, um, and I think when you're doing role play scenarios, it is always good to try and throw yourself in as much as possible. I mean, they were laughing because they thought it was good and they, they thought that I'd really invest a lot of time in it, but I think it just took them by, by surprise. So yeah. I'm laughing at it too. It's kind of a, a Manchester accent, isn't it? It's, well, it's, it's to an untrained ear might, might confuse the two. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Very, it was a very strong, like, Barnsley accent that I, I was trying to put on and um, my, my English colleague found it hilarious. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was trying to tempt you into one there, but it didn't work. No, I, 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 I don't want to go there. I'll leave that to people that know me. So. Very good, very good. And I'm curious to know, because you're, when you're working as, as an analyst, that's a very kind of data intensive, analytical, as the name would suggest, mm. role. How did you get into sales then? Because that's anything but in, in many respects. Mm. I, I think it's probably good to, to set the picture that like um, initially when I came out of university, I was looking you know, to get into my first role. There were a couple, a couple of sales jobs that I took on board and I hated them. I hated them with a passion. Um, and I think it's because a lot of them were the stereotypical things about everything that you would hate about sales. So prime example is, you know, working in a call center, um, you know, selling timeshares and the atmosphere, it was, it was like a, a UK boiler room, uh, kind mm. of experience, um, but with an element of bullying, um, and just a very kind of toxic atmosphere. And so if anything, you know, that would put anyone off wanting to work in sales. So it's really just a case that I kind of branched into um, during my career at Yahoo, where I started off as a um, 
a display performance analyst where it was numbers orientated, but then there was certain elements of, of sales that was there. And then my manager at the time said, you know, Dan, have you thought about, you know, moving into roles as an account manager? And I said, like, no, not really. Like, I'm not interested in, in the sales element at all. Doesn't interest me. And he said, you do realize the things that you're doing right now are sales orientated, the conversations that you're having, the recommendations that you're having. And I was like, yeah, actually, now that you put it that way. Um, and I think it's because, I'd, you know, I had this clear perception in my head of like, this is how sales is. This is the mm -hmm. way it should be. And then it's, it was a completely different atmosphere. So then I just evolved into the role of account management, but it was more of a, a sales focus as well, and more so consultative selling. Um, so it enabled me to have my own kind of personality, have the conversations, but also be analytical and, and data-minded when needed. How much of the uh, call center boiler room type atmosphere, and you talked about toxic uh, atmosphere, mm assumably that comes from management how mm. much of that experience has informed your own leadership style it's as a, as, as, a, as an antidote or a counter to I yeah mean. it's it, it's actually played a, a it's played a crucial part um it's one of those things that i guess this would be the first time that anyone would hear me talk about this but it's it's basically shaped the way that i lead my team today because i want it to be the polar opposite of of that you know, and I could see working in that environment that people were so, so nervous on tenterhooks that they couldn't actually be their own self. They couldn't do the job effectively. And the way that they were trying to, you know, pitch and present their, their timeshares, it was just archaic at the time. Um, so that's why I've tried to instill within my team the polar opposite of all of that. And, it, and it's really about setting a tone at an atmosphere level as well. So anyone that comes into my team i try to set the picture of like this is who i am as a manager this is the way that i work and sometimes it's it's really interesting because there are certain individuals that might be say you know fresh out of college had a couple of roles that come into our team and they might have had positions where that environment still exists today so for them it's the case of like really this, this is this is how you guys work and it's like yes you know, we give you the autonomy to do the things that you're interested in. If you see there's a project that you can launch or, or you know, or initiate, run with it. Mm. And they're kind of a little bit taken aback that they they have that, that freedom within the role. Um, and also the level of honesty, because I think sometimes people aren't open about what you're getting involved in. You know, if I'm if I'm if I'm going into a new position, I want to understand what am I getting involved in here? What's the, the management or leadership style? And that's why I try and set the tone early. So there's no, no ambiguity. And I try to basically put people at ease, essentially. Mm. What, because I, I think it's also about being empathetic to put yourself in that person's shoes. So, you know, you're starting a new role. You're going to be nervous enough. Um, so it's try to settle them as early as possible. And then thrown into the mix as well that having people start working from home is, is just, you know, completely different. And that's yeah. why you have to change your styles as well. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. And you just, you just touched on it. And I was thinking as you were talking that it probably wasn't a consideration at the time, but the way you set up that, that environment has actually set you up nicely for working from home because you created that environment of autonomy, uh, of personal accountability and responsibility mm -hmm. that, that 
the, the environment you came from could not survive oh, yeah. in, 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 in a current working from home uh, situation. So it, you can't, you're now reaping the rewards of it, other than the fact that you've learned that's the best way to do it. Uh, it's had other benefits that maybe weren't anticipated at the time. Yeah, but I, I think I think the struggle that maybe a lot of managers would have if you go back to say um, when the pandemic started um, was you know how do you manage your team you know working remotely you know what are the what are the initial struggles that you're going to have as a manager is it a case that you know you're going to have trust issues is it a case that you you feel that you might not be able to support the team in the way that you you would like to. Um, and also for managers, it's a case of how do you manage a sales team through a pandemic? Mm. Because there's, you know, I could go to my director, I could go to his director. Have you managed during a pandemic? No, the answer is going to be no. So it's a case of, you know, being a little bit proactive about, okay, what's the best way to, to manage the team? So um, it was an opportunity for me to do some, you know, some digging. And it was a really good um, article. Uh, posted in Forbes about the the three C's. So I'm trying to think off the top of my head now. It's um, communication. Um, I think it's communication, concise, and connection. Mm -hmm. So the communication part is really vital in terms of working from home because it's a case of okay, what channels do we use? What's the cadence of the, the communication? Because you want to get it right. You don't want to feel like you know, you're constantly bombarding your, your, your staff, but at the same time, you want to show that um, you can still be there if, if called upon. Um, and also the connection piece is really important as well, because you are you're changing the way that you engage with people, because you're taking into account everything that's going on. So if I'm doing if I'm doing my one to ones with my team in the office, that is a completely different atmosphere to doing a one to one with someone who has three sick kids at home, um, building work going on and is completely stressed out and you can see that they're completely stressed out so you have to be more empathetic and you also have to recognize that it's a change for, for everyone um and then the, the final c which i said I, I can't think what it is now um you said uh communication uh, concise uh well it's connection i think it's being concise connection. i have to i have to kind of dig it Charity, out maybe something like that Charity, yeah i think that's what yeah. it was so it's it's really around, you know, clarity of the way that you're going to work. What's the best mm -hmm. way for you to work? Um, and I put that into action from the from the word go, um, and it really helped me because it helped me say to myself, okay, if I put this into place with my team, and you know, I make them aware of, you know, the fact that I'm going to be a little bit more available to them, as well, um, then everyone knows where they stand, mm -hmm. and it's also important as well that to kind of communicate to them that. You're working from home now. This is completely new, and you're adults. I trust you to get on with the job, and you know I'm not going to be constantly, you know, checking in. Is this person on Slack? Are they responding to my emails on time? Like, no, I trust you're an adult. You know, you get on with the job. The results speak for themselves. So it was that, and it was also a case of sitting down with a team and having an open, honest conversation. So you know, to say like, as a team, how are you doing? What's your circumstances? You know. Because a lot of my team would be, say, um, Ireland wouldn't be their, their home country. They might mm -hmm. be living by themselves. Um, we've had a few people that have moved directly to Ireland. And then the pandemic hit. They're living by themselves. And then they're able, unable to get back to the, their own country. And 
I think it's been, in an ironic way, it's been a blessing in disguise for my team because we are now more closely connected as a team than we were in the office, which sounds really odd to, to say that. Mm. Think, okay, you have a team bond, you're in the office, you can laugh, you can have a joke. But I think because we've had to kind of support one another a lot more, you can see that in terms of some of the conversations, you know, people are a lot quicker to respond if someone is, is struggling. Um, and there's a lot more empathy around to, to different people's circumstances. That's really, really interesting. I had never looked at it that way. I mean, just listening to you relate that one, one was that struck me was that you, you're managing people who are learning to cope with changes in their own life. As you said, you know, they could have sick kids at home and work's going on, but you're also, got change in your own life you're also trying to figure out how do i do this so that's so you got both sets going on both and it's, it's yeah. almost like the two 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 separate moving parts yeah um and then of course you've got to manage up as well and that's another set of moving parts but the the bit that i'd, I'd never considered was the idea of people who had moved to dublin and, I, and I'm, I'm familiar with that 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 type of individual you know, Dublin is a, is a hub for those companies where people come, maybe they're planning to come here for two years, work on their English. It's a young city, you know, it's, it's a good city for young people. And, uh, and, and then they plan on often going back and I've seen it over the years. People I've trained in, in Dublin are now back all over EMEA uh, mm. and further afield now in senior leadership roles. Mm. And uh, but it's 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 almost like the way you describe it. It's almost like they're stranded abroad. Some of them, right? Yeah. And 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 with they're maybe in small apartments, sharing it with one other individual who's also moved here. Exactly. And that idea then that that shared experience amongst the staff is actually what's bonding them, rather than this physical space and the need to look after each other. Uh, wasn't something I, I, I'd actually really thought about, but that's, there's, there's a positive in that. Yeah. And, and I think with that, one thing that I, I would definitely call out is the fact of taking into account different pe people's personalities. So for, for these people um, that, you know, might tune into this podcast, if you, just to give some background context, when Ireland was in lockdown, our lockdown was quite strict in a sense that you were only allowed to go five kilometers from your house at one point. Um, the streets were like ghost towns, essentially. So you're effectively boxed in your own home. And there's only so many walks that you can do before you get sick and tired of the, the five kilometer parameter. Within that, I manage people with different personalities. I have people that are introverts, people that are extroverts, and people that are ambiverts. And the, the key thing is, is recognizing those personalities and how do you how do you address that that person so i have someone who's quite an had or oh, sorry i had someone on my team who's quite an extrovert and i could see that you know the lockdown was impacting them quite hard because they lived in an apartment by themselves you know they're used to that that human you know contact and element and they were like a caged animal and they were really struggling and you could see they're probably you know probably struggling with depression as well it's the case of how do you manage that individual how do you conduct your one-to-ones you know how do you try and you know raise their their morale and then the flip side of that is that you have those people that are introverts so for them actually working from home is a blessing in disguise and and they love it 
But then there's also that period where it gets a little bit tiresome for them. And it's a case of, okay, how do you motivate that person? And then you have your, your ambiverts, which is, you know, we always put people into two buckets. You're either introvert or you're extrovert. But what about the in-between? And that's where your ambiverts come in into the middle. So um, I would probably, my, my wife would say I'm an introvert, but I would actually kind of class, classify myself as being an ambivert, which is basically being in the middle. So, you know, I'm all for having a laugh, uh, but I'm also, I want my downtime and I want my time alone. And those can be the tricky people, I guess out of the two, those can be the trickiest people to kind of manage in a sense of gauging their morale, gauging their, their motivation and... Yeah, that, you're right, because uh, I, I would classify myself as that as well, as just more than happy to be on my own. But every now and again, then you need, you just need that, that human contact. And uh, in terms of your experience then of the pandemic and managing people through that and just your own life as well, what would you say are the positives that you'd like to keep? Um... I think in terms of if I'm looking at it from a work perspective, um, it's definitely being empathetic, like being more so empathetic than I was before. Um, and I think what I'm seeing from, from the individuals that I manage is that they appreciate that, that human level of empathy, that you know I can relate to the things that are going through, I can have an open conversation. Um, and the one-to-one -one discussions that I have, they take on a slightly different dynamic where, you know, I know a little bit more about the people that I manage. I think I probably know a, little, a lot more about the team that I manage now than what I did prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Because I think when you're working in the office, it's like, you know, you book a meeting room, you know, you've only got X amount of time and then someone's banging on the door to chuck you out. Whereas it's a different dynamic when you're doing your one-to-ones virtually from home. So that, that would yeah. be my my work side of things that, you know, empathy would be the one thing that I've kind of embraced more so. Mm. And then I think from a personal level, um, it's just to be thankful for the, the, the bare basics. Like I had, um, when in the, the height of the pandemic, I had a, um, a serious bike accident. Um, I, I broke six of my teeth. I fractured the bone in my mouth. Um, wow. on my, my chin here, I've got scarring on my hands as well. Um, and I could have basically died from from that accident. Um, and it put a lot of things in, into perspective. Um, mm. And I think it, it just kind of, I think there was that initial period where I was, I was really angry because it was a, it was a needless accident to happen because basically a pedestrian walked out in front of me without looking um, on their bike uh, when the traffic lights were green for myself. I hit them at 20 miles an hour, went over the handlebars, landed, teeth first, into the concrete. Um, and I was lucky I wasn't run over uh, from the traffic that was behind me. Uh, but it was a needless accident. And I was I was so angry for such a long time about that accident. Um, and, and the ironic thing about all of that is that, you know, I broke my teeth, but my, my wife's actually a dentist. So I was, I was in good hands. Um, but- um, Are you yeah. a good patient? Yeah, that's the baby. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I think it, I, I was I was so angry for such a long time, and I think it. My wife was a godsend because she, you know, she she tried to put things in perspective, and um, and yeah, I'm I'm just grateful to be alive, really. So yeah. 
Yeah, no, but it is. It is scary. I've done that too, and it's like when it's just carelessness. In my my time, it happened to me. It was all my own fault. Uh, I I was coming up behind a car, uh, going over uh, a bridge in in a town. It wasn't in Dublin. It was in Kilkenny many years ago. And uh, I thought I heard somebody call my name, and I looked over my shoulder behind me. And as I did, the car in front of me stopped. Yeah. And I hit the back of it, and I hit the roof, and left scratch marks with my teeth down the, the roof of the car. And again, I had nobody to blame but myself. But I, you understand, I can understand the, the frustration, and you, you want to lash out, and it's mm. you feel stupid as well, and particularly when it's somebody else's carelessness. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tough, tough one. But again, it's uh, I guess. It's um, yeah no. This you, you, I I'm trying to find ways of, of of kind of rationalizing in some positive way, and there really isn't. Other than maybe being grateful, realizing that how life can be taken away in an instant, without any warning uh, at all. Yeah. That some something seriously like that could have happened, as you said, you could have broken your neck. Anything could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I was incredibly lucky. I mean, how how I didn't break anything um, anything else. You know, the doctor said it was actually like a, a miracle, but, um, mm. but yeah, uh, it was a lot of kind of painful dental work, um, but, uh, but I got there in the end. Yeah. Has it changed your perspective on anything? Um, Other than pedestrians. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, not, not really, I think. I think it, one of the things I'd say is, is that I, I need to maybe be a little bit kinder to myself. So I, I had that accident. Um, I was banged up quite badly. Um, I couldn't even, um, I couldn't even talk. Um, I looked like I had Botox that had gone wrong. Like my lips were just huge. Um, it's quite painful. Um, and I was back working within a few days, working from home. And my wife was saying, you know, you really don't, and my, and my manager was saying as well, you really don't need to be working. Just take the time to recover. It's like, no, I can, I can do it. I can, you know, I can sit at home. I have my laptop. And then I think, you know, even for example, doing one-to-ones with my team was, was a bit of a nightmare because I, I could talk, but I was like, and, you know, I don't think it was probably fair on them in, in hindsight, but um, I think it was, you know, I could have, Give my being be kinder to myself to, to give myself time to, to properly recover as well, and also have a bit of mental space to myself as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, but I think it was also probably a distraction as well at the time for for the anger part. You know, if I can focus on work, I'm not focused on being angry. So, yeah. but I think upon yeah. reflection, I think just try and be, try and kind of like dial down the the anger. Yeah. And just be kinder to myself. Interesting. And in terms of what you're doing currently, what's giving you a, the greatest sense of accomplishment? Um, for me personally, I think it's seeing the development in the people that I manage. Um, so the team that I'm, I'm managing right now, um, it's a really, relatively new team in the sense that we were started three years ago. And there might've been people that came on board who had no real kind of prior experience of working in account management, working in sales. And to see their development of thinking back to when they started to, to how they are now uh, and the, the progression that they've made, the sort of things that they're doing within the role, um, the sort of successes that they're having, that is the most 
rewarding thing for me. Um, it's mm. actually seeing the, the development in others. Um, and I know, you, you know, that might not be a, a typical response you get from, from people that work in sales, because they might be detail orientated or think about their own personal career growth or, or development. But for me, it's really seeing that development in others that I, I take the- You know, it's funny you should say that. It's probably the most common response. Okay. I'm, I'm actually, and, 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 I'm, and I mean that in the most positive way that I am actually constantly surprised, not surprised anymore, but there's, there's a sense of real comfort and, and, and joy I, I, I get hearing that because there is this stereotype that sales is, you know, people are only about the money. Mm. But the most common answer is seeing the growth of the team or individuals. Mm. Um, that that's what people take the greatest satisfaction from, which is great. Which, in some respects, is well, it's circular because if 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 you're good at that, then you're going to succeed. But the money then, and that that kind of that kind of success, commercial success, is a byproduct rather than the than the pure motive of the role in the first place. Mm. So it's quite interesting. I don't know that if you are that type of sales savage who comes in and only cares about the money if you go into leadership i don't think you're going to last mm. unless you adapt to or get the idea that your success is going to be through the growth of others yeah and and i guess that that raises the question as well about your your management style so let's say for example you know you have you could you know out the space of four years every year you're going to go in and manage a different team do you take that same approach from mm. the first year to the second year with that, that new team? Mm. Or, you know, do you have the flexibility to change your style based on the, on the needs of the individuals? Mm. And so that's what I've tried to do with this team that I'm, I'm working with. So yes, I am hungry. Like I'm, I'm always wanting more of my team, but at the same time, it's about the way that you position that because I don't want, like, it, it can be quite a pressurized job in itself. And mm -hmm. so I recognize that and I know when to push people and when to kind of ease back. And if I am pushing them, I do it in a kind of lighthearted way. So we might have whatever goal it is and I'll kind of joke and say, well, you know what? I'm like, I'll always want more. Um, but they understand that, you know, it's just my management style. But I think that as I said, the key thing is really that you are, you have that adaptability to the team that you're managing. Because if you try and adopt the same approach, yes it might work but the chances are it's not and mm. and a really good example uh i can give you is just the way that you approach different markets because i work in a multi-market uh functioning role um it's really interesting the way that you would position something in greece versus say israel so in greece it's very much about um it's old school in terms of meeting with digital agencies um it's very respectful you could have the most fantastic product in the world but they're really kind of more interested in you as a person and are you trustworthy and are you credible? The flip side of that is with the likes of Israel is that it is very, very direct. And I will never forget my first uh, trip to Tel Aviv where we were doing a, a presentation and I was doing it with two people. So one person was from Yorkshire, a lovely girl from Sarah, very nice, very down to earth. And then we had uh, a colleague who um, had basically, she was from New Zealand, but she'd lived in Israel for, for 20 odd years. So she knew the market intimately. 
So on the one hand, you have Sarah who gets up on stage. Hi guys, how are you? I'm Sarah, nice to meet you. I'm very nice and chilled and relaxed. And I was just sat there, oh, this is nice. And then my colleague, my other colleague got up um, who'd been in the market 20 odd years and just started with, right, I don't wanna hear about this, 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 and this. Don't ask me about X, Y, and Z. And I was just sat there in absolute shock. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? But it's the, it's what works in the market. And mm. after that presentation, she came off the stage and there was an orderly queue of 20 people queuing up to, to give out their business cards. That would not happen in Greece. Mm. So it's about understanding acutely different markets have, have different ways of working and so do different people on teams as well. So that's yeah, why. It, it is, it is fascinating that when you start to look at cultures as well as individual styles. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. There was a question I wanted to ask you, and it's gone straight out of my head now. Oh, I know, I know what I wanted to ask you was, could you tell us an experience that you've had that you treasure? Something that maybe you've done or, or, or have experienced that you reckon probably nobody you work with knows about you? Hmm. Um, there's a lot, well, that won't get you in trouble, by the way, I should have added that right here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there's, there's, there's one thing that like, um, there's one thing that stands out, you know, in terms of my career at Yahoo, which was, um, 2016, um, I was, I was in kind of transition in terms of my, my roles. I'd had multiple managers and. Uh, a manager came in and basically said, like, um, Dan, you're going to be really busy um, traveling this year. So that, oh, OK. And basically, we have resellers that we work with in different markets. And I was in a position where one by one, people on the team had left. So it's kind of like the sole analysts left to, to, to work on all of these regions. And I was the only person that could essentially go into these local markets to, to give training. So I went to Sweden, South Africa, uh, Romania, Belgium, and Greece um, over the per period of, I think, six to eight weeks. Oh, and Switzerland mm. as well, of just doing in-market training. And I loved it because it enabled me to, I was given the same training essentially, but I had to customize it to, to those local markets. Um, and the only person that could customize it was myself because I couldn't rely on anyone else because I was the only one who knew the markets, you know, intimately. I knew the, the resellers that worked there. And it was a really good chance to, to get to know those teams on a, on a personal level, experience the, the market, train people up. And I learned so much from it. And it's the one thing that I still hold, you know, dearest to me to this day is those, those eight weeks of just constant traveling, meeting different people. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. And I think it's, that is the that is one of the perks of the job is to go to these different markets and give these sort of you know training sessions. Um, mm. And I just, I just just um, you know just love that that opportunity. And those training sessions, correct me if I'm wrong, at some level give you an opportunity to perform the drama in, yeah. in that that need. Well, I, I don't know about that that need necessarily, but um, but yeah, I think it showcasing that you're a subject matter expert in something and also 
the people that I was given the, the training to were all levels. So you could have someone who had no exposure to our, our product offering up to someone that was the CEO of the, of the company. Yeah. So that, that's difficult in itself, but then you have to find, you know, tune that to the local market. And then I'd never given this sort of level of training before. So I had to reach out to the learning development team to make sure, okay, am I on the right path here? Am I, am I missing something? So, and I felt the pressure as well because I was training them to basically take on board a role that I was doing and go, right, okay, off you go, you manage it now. Mm. So I needed to get it right in that, that, that small period of time. And there was a lot of pressure in, involved in that, but it's something that, you know, that I enjoyed. Um, mm. But I mean, in terms of theatricals and, and drama aspect of it, um, yeah, I, I guess it, it's just it's a chance for you to basically own the stage, own the floor, because they are they are relying on you to give the training and they're relying on you to showcase your knowledge. Mm. No, there, there's an element of drama always about presenting and training because you have to sell it, mm. not just enough to present it. You do have to sell it. And and that's what that's what a good actor does on stage. Mm. They're, they're selling the part. They're selling the role. Yeah, uh, they're, they're selling the story. Exactly. Um, Mm, interesting. Uh, oh, that didn't, there was a question that I had a moment ago as well. That these flash through my head when we're talking, no, and then but I, no, it's okay because I'm listening. And then when it comes to asking the question, um, then what goes out of my mind was I, I, I should write should write it down. Um, it was I know what it was. It was about your leadership journey, mm. and that what would you say was the most important lesson you've learned. Um, I think it's probably to have a certain level of self-confidence um, because not all leaders are going to, you know, from the word go, are going to be confident. Mm. Um, and I think it's, there's always that element of, you know, fight or flight. And you put in certain situations which you might not have encountered before. And it's about, you know, how do I handle that? And... I'll be the first one to say there's probably a lot of situations where I've handled it incorrectly because I've been naive or been inexperienced. But the most important thing is that you kind of learn from that and you correct it for, for the next time around. Mm. But I think also as well is that there are people out there that probably do have that, that leadership capability, but they need someone to recognize that and to kind of sell that to them. So when I worked at um, Google Maps, you know, I had someone to try and kind of sell and pitch to me that like, Dan, I think you could make a good team leader here. And they really had to convince me to, to, to put myself on the line to, you know, to go for that. And then like with the role of the team that I'm leading now, my director, basically, you know, they could have gone for someone external, which would have been the easiest and quickest route, but he saw something in me and it was a case of trying to sell that position to me. Um, and I like to think that obviously, I, I, you know, proved him right to a certain degree but i think it's about also having just a degree of confidence in yourself that you can do the can do the role um, and that there will be you know you'd like to think you come in and you do a perfect job like that's never going to happen you're always going to get you know things wrong but it's just about having a confidence to recognize that you will get those things wrong and that you can learn from them if you had to retire in the morning dan and financially that was fine but you had to retire what would you do 
first of all, drive my wife mad. That would be the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a given. That's a yeah, given. Yeah. Um, in, in, if you took kind of, I guess, COVID out of the equation, um, oh. lots of traveling, lots of cycling. Cycling is, is my passion. Um, so, and then, yeah, I guess it boils down to two things, you know, traveling, cycling, photography. Um, again, that's something else that drives my wife mad with because, you know, we'll be out, you know, we could be abroad somewhere. She's 20 paces in front of me and I'm busy taking photos. Um, it doesn't work, Dan. I can tell you, as yeah. somebody who absolutely does, yeah, if, if you're with my wife, the same thing. You just got, I have to go away on my own. I cannot do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so so hard. It's actually, and it's hard on them too. I get it because you can't be saying stop, stop, stop. Hang on a second, because they have no interest in the subject yeah. as well, and it's yeah, it's a difficult one. What do you like to shoot though? What's what's what what gets your interest? Um, landscapes, but not. I guess it's also the the, the framing and position of pictures. Um, I like to capture kind of um, sporting moments. So, for example, we had the Giro. Italia came to Ireland. Um, it was a chance for me to take some some really good photos that I'm, I'm really proud of. Um, but typically, when I go away, I like to take um, capture kind of landscapes from a different perspective, um, and just quirky things as well. Quirky yeah. things that I see. It's more so the quirky things as well that, that I guess appeals to me. I figured it out then. If you, if you stitch it all together, you're a storyteller. Okay. If you think about it, the drama, people who take photographs, that's, that's exactly what you're doing. You're, you're telling a story, but you're doing it visually. You're trying to, yeah. to capture something that grabs your eye and, and represent it in a particular way. When you, when you decide to frame something in a particular way, you're making a decision how that's going to be represented to others. Mm. And, um, and, and, and the training, et cetera. I don't know if you've ever thought of that way, but it's, it just strikes me yeah. that it seems to be that's, that's, that's that's that common ground in, in, in amongst all the things that you're doing, mm. um, in, including how you manage your team. Yeah, I, I think, um, as I said, I, I think it's a case of like trying to see the other side of, you know, that person coming in, that person, mm. their, their role. Um, and because I've done the role myself, I think that's what helps mm. as a manager, because mm you know, I'm empathetic because I know the things that they're going through. I know the pains, the struggles. Um, but sometimes you're going to have someone who hasn't done that role. And it's the case of how do you, how do you settle the nerves? Yeah. Um, how do you set the scene? That that's probably the most important thing. So what is this person coming into? What, what are the, the short term objectives versus the long term objectives and how are you going to get there? And how do I, what's my expectation as well, because I think that can be sometimes unsettling for, for particularly for new people as well, that they put so much pressure on themselves that when they come into a role, it's a case that they're not to 60 in three seconds and they expect to learn and absorb everything so quickly. And it's about trying to manage their expectations that, whoa, 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 slow down here. Um, and if I try and manage their expectations, it, it somewhat alleviates the pressure that they're, they're putting on themselves. Mm. And coming back to that whole kind of storytelling aspect, I like mm. to give them different analogies um, as well. And I like to use things that I can relate to in terms of sporting analogies that I then incorporate, you know, into mm. having those those one-to-one -one discussions. 
So a really good example of that actually is um, it's it might seem a bit um, juxtaposed, but we had a three year plan for our team in terms of revenue goals. And I knew full well that I presented when I would present this to my uh, team, they would say, like, there's not hope in hell we're going to hit those revenue goals. I know the whole that's, that's what happens. Um, but it's about the way that you, you kind of position it. So in my mind, it was the case that it's all about doing things in small incremental steps. So um, Mark Beaumont, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mark Beaumont. Um, no. So uh, he basically, um, he holds the record for um, traveling around the world uh, in less than 80 days on, on his bike. So he was aided by a support crew. And you know his, his whole approach is, is like, if you turn around and say to anyone on the street, right, okay, I want you to cycle around the world in less than 80 days, they'll be like, not hope, it's never gonna happen. But he said the, the simplest way to kind of approach it is, is that he has to do 260 odd miles a day in order to, to beat that goal. So he mm. then breaks it down into um, four hour segments. And mm. his role is to just focus purely on, okay, four hours, get that done, then I have my break, then focus on the next four hours. And he said, before you know it, he was halfway around the world. Um, and it's just all about the, the mental mindset. So the, the bigger goal is, is huge, but the smaller goals, when you break it down, are that much more feasible. So that, that's one kind of way that I tried to kind of break that down with my team that like, okay, you've got that three year plan. Let's start with the first year. And how do we achieve that? So again, looking at the, the sporting analogies, um, one thing that I'm, I'm quite a passionate advocate about is marginal gains. Um, it's a theory that's been sometimes looked at about how you can integrate that into business where if you make enough small changes that when you combine that together, they make a significant impact. Um, and so that's what I try and kind of introduce in, in my team. So it could be a case of a look at how do we go after our, our churn book of business? How do we service our strategic clients? What sort of incentive deals can we put in place? And once you start to tweak all of these points, the whole culmination sorry, of all of this um, is that, uh, you know, it's going to make a huge difference. And if you carry this on over the pace, you know, the course of three years, you're going to hit your goals. So again, it's about trying to um, reassure people and say, like, look, it might it might seem daunting now, but this is the way that we're going to approach it. So as I said, like they, they might seem too random analogy uh, or anecdotal stories, um, but they're the things that I'm kind of passionate about and I try and put into pla uh, practice. I like it. Dan, Dan, we're almost up on time and it's just flown by. Uh, you're a fascinating character. I'm curious to know, because you've, you've had such a, a varied career in terms of things that you've done. Mm. Um, a couple of very quick final questions. Where do you see your, kind of the future 10 years down the line from now? What, what, what would you like to be doing? Um, I think... I mean, put it this way, I always hate those sort of interview questions of like, you know, where, where do you see yourself in five or 10 years time? Mm. And, it, and it's a case of, um, it's not about seeing myself in a, a particular role. It's about the, mm. the sort of things that I will be doing. And I guess the short term vision for myself is to continue doing what I'm doing because I really enjoy it. I think the long term vision is to then uh, be a mentor to maybe multiple managers. 
um, that's something that I think, um, I mean, I, I do mentoring as it is right now for my own, my own team. I really enjoy it. But that would be, I guess, like the next level. Because yeah. you have that experience enough to say, right, okay, well, you know, as a manager, you know, I've come across multiple situations that, you know, I can be a subject matter expert. Um, so yeah. I think that would probably be further down the line. Um, but I think sometimes within our current kind of industry, there's always that, there's always that element that you, you need to be looking at the more, you know, the, mo the next step that's a more senior position as such, you know, because that is a measurement of success. Mm. It's all about the way that you perceive it. So for me, my measurement of success is really about just gaining as much experience as I can and as much knowledge as I can and then figuring it out as I go along the way. So it's a very generic answer of, you know, being able to mentor other managers mm. or be, you know, a leader of other managers. But that's somewhere that I think I'd like to go. Mm. But I also need to, like, you know, do that as well and, and you know, see, is it actually what I want to do? Because it's it all makes sense. Because it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because yeah. the final point I'd make is, is that it comes back to that, that whole point that I'm saying to you that, like, when I was a kid, I wanted to design football stadiums, you know, did that pan out? No, <laughs> you know, because I learned, I learned quickly. It, it wasn't for me. So it's an aspiration. Whether it's the right thing for me remains to be seen. When you go into different stadiums though around the place, do you look at them and kind of go, ooh, I would change that or I like the way they've done that? Is, is, is there still, there's still an interest for you in that? There is because um, I use every single business trip as, as a means to get a football match in, in, in a different country. So, um, uh, hopefully my company's not listening and didn't hear that, but, um, but yeah, I do try and incorporate, uh, those yeah. sort of visits in, but, um, yeah, it's something that I still, still have an interest in. Um, so yeah. Very good. Final question for you. Mm -hmm. When your time on this planet is done and they write a book about your life, what would you like the title to be? It's a good question. I, I don't think I could give any answer now off the top of my head. Um, how do you want to be remembered by people? Um, someone who cared about others. Um, someone who didn't take themselves too seriously. Um, mm. And someone who's passionate, you know, mm. have interests, I'm passionate in them. Um, I enjoy doing what I'm doing. Um, and I like to help others. Um, and it, and it, We'll go with a working title. He lived, he cared, he helped. Yeah. Just a working know. title. We'll change it later. Don't worry. Don't worry. We won't go to press, but just. Uh, Makes me sound a bit too, too biblical. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't yeah, go that Yeah, good stuff. Listen, Dan, I thoroughly enjoyed the chat. I really enjoyed getting to know you. Uh, really, really interesting character. And uh, I, I know if, if people listening enjoyed half as much as I do, it'll be another five-star review. And, uh, and that's a reminder to people listening, if you have enjoyed this, anywhere as much as I have, please consider giving the podcast a review. Always helps. Daniel Hislin, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me, Paul. I, I feel uh, a bit like imposter uh, syndrome being being asked this onto the, onto the podcast. Not at all. Everybody has a story and everybody's story is so valuable. <laughs>